This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to Up Next. I'm Marty Lasden, and on this edition, we consider the future of both sex and human reproduction. My guest is Henry Greeley. He's the director of the Center for Law and the Biosciences at Stanford University. He's also director of the Stanford Program in Neuroscience and Society, and he's the steering committee chair of Stanford's Center for Biomedical Ethics. His new book is called, intriguingly enough, The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction. Professor Greeley, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So your vision, as I understand it, is that in the not-too-distant future, we're talking maybe 30, 40 years from now, uh, most babies that are born in this country will be conceived not in a bedroom or in the back seat of an automobile, as I was, but uh, rather in clinics where uh, people will be able to exert more and more control over what genes their kids will and will not have. And and you say this is going to happen with the advent of what you're calling Easy PGD. So what exactly is Easy PGD, and why exactly do you think that it portends the end of sex as a means of reproduction? So Easy PGD starts with figuring out what PGD is. Yeah, good. PGD is pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about this, a lot of people think I'm talking about science fiction. It's taking an embryo, either a three-day-old embryo, which is about eight cells, or a five-day-old embryo, which is a couple hundred cells, taking some cells off that embryo, doing genetic tests on the cells you've taken, and then figuring out, aha, this embryo will have cystic fibrosis, this embryo will be blonde, this embryo will be a girl, this embryo will be a boy, etc. PGD has actually been around for 25 years. It's not new. The problem with PGD is you have to use another acronym, IVF. Right. All PGD that's done today is done in the context of in vitro fertilization. That's right. And IVF is a pain. It's expensive. This is hard PGD. This is hard PGD. Two things are changing. First, we can now cheaply sequence an entire genome. For the last 25 years of PGD, we've been able to look at one or two genes in an embryo, and now we'll be able to look at all of the genes in the embryo and figure out everything that genetics can tell us about the baby that that embryo would become and the adult that embryo would become. The second great advance that will lead to easy PGD is avoiding egg harvest With egg harvest, you've got to inject women with very expensive and uncomfortable fertility drugs so that instead of ovulating just one egg or two eggs a month, they do 10 or 20 or 30. That's uncomfortable. It's really expensive. And every couple of years, someone dies as a result of it. And about half of a percent of women who go through it every year end up hospitalized as a result. It's not a good thing. What we'll see is instead of egg harvest, we'll be able to use something called our third acronym of the day, IPSC, Mm -hmm. induced pluripotent stem cells, where we could take a skin cell from you or me, take out about a millimeter, so maybe a a 20th of an inch wide chunk of skin, 
turn those cells into these induced pluripotent stem cells, which act like human embryonic stem cells, but they're not taken from an embryo, they're taken from a living person, convince those induced pluripotent stem cells to become eggs or sperm, and then use those to make babies. So the easy part of easy PGD is using stem cell-derived eggs, combining them with sperm, usually naturally provided sperm, and then doing whole genome sequencing on the embryos you get. How many embryos do you get? How many embryos do you want? Mm-hmm. You could get one, ten, a hundred, a thousand, a oh, million. Okay, so it's easier, but why would it be more desirable than having babies the, the natural way, the old-fashioned way? Yeah. So the old-fashioned way of babies is a crapshoot. You don't know what you're going to get. Uh, easy PGD will also be a crapshoot, but you'll know a little bit more about what you're going to get. I'm a parent myself, and I have no belief that we're going to eliminate the surprises in parenthood. But we're going to limit them a little bit. Because when, let's say, you and your partner decide to become parents, you go to the clinic, uh, she gives some skin cells to be made into eggs, you give a sperm sample, they make 100 embryos. For those 100 embryos, they do a whole genome sequence. And then they tell you the results. And for, say, five of them, will have a really serious early disease. You don't want those. Mm-hmm. Of the other 95, they'll ask, what would you like to know? Would you like to know about other diseases like Alzheimer's risk or breast cancer risk or colon cancer risk? Would you like to know about hair color, eye color, skin color, male pattern baldness, early gray hair? Would you want to know about behavioral traits, about how well they'll do on the SAT or musical ability or sports ability. We won't be able to say, aha, this embryo is the next Michael Jordan, but we will be able to say, I think, this embryo has a 60% chance of being in the top half or a 12% chance of being in the top 10%. And then the last thing you'll be asked whether you want to know or not is the easiest genetically, boy or girl. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're talking, it occurs to me that it was widespread access to effective contraception that went a long way toward divorcing the relationship between sex and reproduction. What you're talking about is the prospect of entirely divorcing reproduction from sex. So uh, do you think I'd be going out on a limb to suggest that this is not going to go over terribly well at the Vatican? I think that's safe. (laughs) And I think there, there are a few things I can say with certainty about this idea, and one is the Vatican won't like it. Uh-huh. And you say that most babies will be conceived this way within 20 to 40 years? Yeah, my guess is 20 to 40 years. I, I think we're probably 5 to 10 years away from the technology to make this possible. Right. And I think and I hope we're at least 10 years of subsequent safety testing away from making it clinically available. So with this technology, uh, you'll be able to take a man's skin cells and from those uh, cells produce eggs, fertile eggs, as well as sperm, correct? Well, that's not as, that's not as clear, but I think that's going to happen. And that opens up another possible population of, that would be interested in this, gays and lesbians. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. I mean, if, if, you can, if a man can produce eggs as well as sperm, yep. and if women can produce sperm as well as eggs, 
then it will be possible for same-sex couples yep. to have children that are genetically related to them. That's right. Uh, the, the guys would still need to, to have a surrogate mother yep. to carry the pregnancy. The women wouldn't even need that necessarily. You also, in your book, talk about uni-parenting uh, and yes. multiplex parenting. Uh, please explain what those two concepts are. Yeah, um, the uniparent took me by surprise. One of the many times I've talked about this idea over the five years I've been working on the book, one of my law school colleagues said, you know, if you can make an egg from me and a sperm from me and you put those together, you'd have a clone of me, wouldn't you? And the answer is no, not quite a clone. Um, I came up with the term uniparent and unibaby uh, because... We have about 23,000 genes. On some of them, we have two copies that are the same. and some of them, we have two copies that are slightly different. On a gene where I have the same two copies, any unibaby made from me would have that copy, those copies. If I had two different copies, it might get two of one, two of the other, or one of each. So it wouldn't be exactly the same as me, but genetically it would be awfully close I think this is one of the questions where legislators and others will have to think about, do we want to regulate this? Mm-hmm. It raises some real health risks in terms of what we call recessive diseases. But if you've got the screening in place, exactly. that's not a problem. If you've got the screening in place, you can avoid at least the known recessive diseases. Um, it seems pretty creepy. It seems completely egomaniacal, so it may not be completely a surprise that it was a law professor who thought of it. But uh, my guess is if it is allowed as an option, if it becomes possible and is allowed as an option, not very many people will do it, but it's a big planet with lots of people on it, and someone is going to try to become a uniparent. Mm-hmm. Okay, now what about multiplex parenting? Yeah, the multiplex parenting actually wasn't my idea. Uh, I owe that to uh, a law professor colleague named Sonia Souter, who pointed out you could take two people, make an embryo, from those two people, take those embryonic cells, make eggs and sperm from those, and match them with a third person. Okay. So you'd have a baby that is one-quarter person A, one-quarter person B, and one-half person C. That clear to me why anybody would want to well, do that. I was just going to ask you that. Why yeah. would anyone do it's that? It's in a way you want two people want to be the grandparents, and somebody wants to be the parent, and the embryonic stem cells provide the intervening parent. Not clear to me why anybody would want to do it, but it's another possibility opened up by this. One of the things that surprised me the more I got into this is how many odd and somewhat disturbing things become possible once you can make eggs and sperm out of cells. The the implications are profound, aren't they? Well, So, for example, this coffee cup now has my skin cells on it. If after this interview in 20 years, you took that cup, you could take those skin cells, lip cells, you could turn them into sperm, you could turn me into a father without me knowing it. With women, if you can make cells, if you can make eggs, fertile, viable eggs out of skin cells, women have a biological clock based on how long the eggs they're born with last but their skin cells last forever. So an 80-year-old woman could make fertile eggs. So could an 8-year-old girl. Yes. So could 
a woman who's been dead for 10 years but has had her tissues frozen and preserved. So there are all sorts of eerie possibilities here that I think um, clinicians, parents, and legislators and ethicists will have to think about. Do we want to allow this? Do we want to ban it? Do we want to allow it in some circumstances? The possibilities for unknowing parenthood go up a lot. The possibilities for very odd family relationships, uh, posthumous parent parenting, uh, many things change if you can make eggs and sperm from skin cells. What about incest? You know, we do have laws in this country that prohibit incest, of course, but in the absence of sexual intercourse, would those laws even apply? That's a really interesting question, and my best answer to that is it depends, followed by it's not clear. Part of it will depend on how the incest laws are written. Part of it, whether they ban just the sexual act or any sort of creation of children through it. I'd note, by the way, this is already a possibility with IVF. Right. Easy PGD so just say makes it more So say with the common. laws that exist today, yeah. let's say an IVF clinic, for whatever reason, decides to fertilize a woman's eggs with her father's sperm and then uses the uh, existing technology to uh, minimize the hazards of inbreeding, with today's laws, would that be illegal? And the answer is it depends. Yeah, it depends I, on I think why. in many states it depends on the wording of the incest laws. And uh-huh. in, in many states I think it wouldn't be, but there may be some states in which it would be. Uh, it does raise the, the hard question, is what we care about in incest, the power relationships that lead to sexual exploitation, which is certainly one thing we care about, is it the possibility of genetic defects in children born, which is another thing we care about, or is it just the idea of making children between close relatives? Uh, those have all come. Those, those have all been bundled together in the past. Mm. This technology breaks them out, and will require us to make some decisions about what it is we really care about. You know, I mentioned the Vatican a while ago, uh, but apart from the religious, uh, it seems to me that those who tend toward the conservative side of the political spectrum are also going to have a hard time uh, with most, if not all, of this. So let's say in 20 or 30 years, our presidential candidates start debating on national television the merits of uni-parenting or multiplex parenting or producing babies from the dead. How do you imagine those debates are going to sound like? To the extent it's about making babies who don't have trisomy 13 or Tay-Sachs disease or 4,000 other really, really awful diseases or who don't carry the gene that inevitably causes in one person in a 1,000 early onset Alzheimer's. That's a political winner. I think the political fight in the states will be at the edges of things like, should parents be able to use this to pick boy or girl? Should they be able to use it to pick hair color and eye color? Um, And those will be interesting fights. What makes them so tricky in this context is the technique of whole genome sequencing means all the information is there. And you're really trying to, to keep to allow some of the information out of the box and keep other information in there. Uh, some of the implementation issues are 
you know, implementation is never sexy and exciting. It just is really important. Mm-hmm. And some of the issues about how you would write and try to enforce those kinds of regulations are really tricky. Then at the far end, you get to things like uniparents and whether you know, I can easily imagine a legislature deciding to ban uniparents or, tri- or banning incest. I think the one that may be, I think the other category that may be easily banned, although it, be, it will be tricky, is banning parents who want to select an embryo with a disability. Hmm. They affirmatively want a child that has a disability. There won't be many parents like that, but it's a big world. There are a lot of parents, and there are a couple of examples where it's, it's pretty plausible. Deaf parents may well want a child who's deaf, a child like them. Would we prohibit parents from choosing to have a baby that had what the rest of us consider a disability when, they, when it's the way they are and the way they want their kid to be? I think that'll be a really interesting both political and philosophical debate. So you know, if, if today's abortion debate serves as any guide, then certainly a lot of people, and perhaps you'd be included in this, would argue that the, uh, the prospective parent's right to choose should trump just about all other considerations. Is that, is that what you feel? Is that what you believe? I think we are better off letting the prospective parents make the decision. Now, that, not quite an answer to your question, because I'm not sure I view that as a right, as a constitutional or human right for parents to make that decision. But I think the world, on average, the world as a whole will be better off if we put this in the hands of the parents rather than put it in the hands of the medical profession or the legislature or, God help us, bioethicists. Giving parents the power to choose. Yeah, because I think parents, by and large, are going to choose for the best interests of their child. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a lot of parents. Some of them won't. Some of them will make mistakes. Some of them will be crazy. But by and large, I trust parents, for the most part, to make what they think are the best decisions for their kids. You you mentioned sex selection, which is something that we've known how to do for quite a while. And that already has created serious problems in a number of countries that, uh, to be blunt about it, do not value girls very much. For example, in India, uh, the abortion rate for unborn girls is so high now, and the resultant shortage of young women has become so severe that many people believe that it, it has at least partially contributed to the epidemic of rapes that we are now seeing in that country. So isn't that, doesn't that serve as a compelling example of what can go wrong if, as you say, we let parents choose what kinds of children they want to have? So I think it serves as an example. I'm not sure I'd agree that it's a compelling example. Why not? They're different cultures. They're not necessarily toxically different cultures. But I think one of the interesting things we're beginning to see in Asia, which has been where most of this, the yeah. uh, anti-female sex selection has taken place, not all of it, but most of it, it looks like the tide may be turning. Does it uh, in India? Yeah, Is that it, true? Well, in, in India, not, well, it, what's happening in India, it seems, this was first taken up in the big cities. And now in the big cities, the sex selection ratio is moving in the direction of normal. 
as it moves into more and more rural areas, you're still, those areas are now just taking up this process. So the overall ratio looks, continues to look mm-hmm. bad. But if it's been in a place for 10 or 20 years, it, it, there's some reason to think that women are becoming, girl babies are becoming more valued. Maybe the best example is South Korea, which had one of the world's most skewed sex ratios 10 or 15 years ago and has now come back to very close to normal. The law banned it now, banned sex selection today, but it banned sex selection 20 years ago. The word eugenics does have a sinister ring to it. And, of course, it has a sinister ring because it's associated with a lot of very ugly history. But whether we're talking about selecting babies based on their genetic desirability or we're talking about forcefully sterilizing women, we're still talking eugenics, aren't we? I'm I'm really glad you asked that question because it's important. Eugenics can mean different things and can depend on what we care about, what it is that bothers us. Right now, since World War II, since the, the horrors of the Nazi regime have become more better understood, eugenics basically means... This is a terrible thing. Whatever you say, when you say something is eugenics, well, you are condemning it. There are people who call themselves neo-eugenicists who say that the Nazis gave eugenics a bad name. Right. But whether we're talking about bad eugenics or neo-eugenics, we're talking about efforts to improve the human race. But here's the question. What was wrong with 20th century eugenics, which, by the way, was pioneered not in Germany but in the United States and most heavily used in the United States in California. 30,000 Californians were forcibly sterilized. Is what's wrong, was it forcible that the government was forcing it? Was it sterilization that was the wrong part? Was it that the science was so bad that they weren't even achieving their own ends and it was being used uh, as a proxy for a bunch of racist and nationalist ends? Or was it, is the, the harm, the evil of eugenics, the very act of trying to choose to have babies who will be healthier? Depending on how you answer what's wrong with eugenics, what the bad thing is about eugenics, that tends to lead to somebody's... Uh, that tends to relate to your definition of what eugenics means. I think eugenics, in a condemnatory sense, should be limited to government-imposed eugenics, government-imposed limitations on who can reproduce and with what. That, I think, should be thoroughly condemned. And to me, it's the combination of government force, the use of sterilization, and all of it in the context of really limited and bad and overhyped science led to the horrors of the first half of the 20th century's use of eugenics. Is what the end of sex portends eugenics? Is it parental eugenics? Is it free market eugenics? Maybe, but that depends on what you mean by eugenics. I, I think it's fairly uh, safe to say that uh, the eugenics laws that in this country led to the forced sterilization of tens of thousands of people uh, over the course of the 20th century, those laws have been entirely discredited. But uh, there is in your book a footnote, a rather fascinating footnote, in which you relate a conversation that you had with the late Carl Gerasi. Yeah. 
tell, talk about, describe that conversation. Well, so Carl Gerasi is a chemistry professor at Stanford mm-hmm. and one of the fathers of the contraceptive pill, a really interesting man who later in life became a playwright and wrote lots of plays around these kinds of issues, uh, very interested in reproduction. And Carl's view was that my idea was interesting, but didn't, I wasn't ambitious and bold enough that he thought in the future we would sterilize all children before they reached the age of puberty. Routinely. Routinely, and then when they decided to have kids, either temporarily unsterilize them or using the tools of EZPGD, make eggs and sperm, so that they couldn't have children except through the clinic. And this would allow us to avoid unplanned teenage and other unfortunate pregnancies. What do you think? No. Why not? For one thing, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of babies conceived in bed or in the backseat of the car or under a keep-off-the-grass sign, both because accidents happen, but also because there will be people who, for religious reasons, for principled reasons, philosophical reasons, for personality reasons, choose not choose to roll the dice, choose yeah. to have their kids the old-fashioned way. But in the world that you're describing, where easy PGD virtually eliminates the possibility of having a child with a birth defect, it seems to me that in that world, having children the old-fashioned way will come to be viewed as not only primitive, but also irresponsible and perhaps even immoral. You think I'm wrong? It's possible. Um, it's possible you're wrong. It's possible you're right. Yeah, you're really going uh, on the limb here on this. Yeah, no, look, so... <laughs> I mean, it seems plausible it, to it, me. It's plausible that the yeah. culture could act that yeah. way, just as right now uh, our culture condemns pregnant women who drink to excess, condemns pregnant women who do things that are really dangerous to the mm-hmm. fetus. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean people don't do them. It doesn't mean, for the most part, they aren't legal, Uh, Pregnant women are allowed to drink, but they get stares. I think we'll continue to see babies born the old-fashioned way. We'll see babies born using easy PGD just to avoid serious early diseases. Mm -hmm. Then we'll see the all-in early adopters who will want to learn everything they possibly can and obsess to way too great a degree over what their choices will mean. Um, The world is large. Humanity is strange. We'll see all sorts of reactions to this. But I think one way or the other, this kind of increased control over the genetic variations of the next generation is coming. It's coming faster than I think most people expect. And we need to be ready for it. We need to be ready for it at two levels. You and I, not so much at the first level, but There are people alive today who will need to make a decision for themselves. Do I want to use this? Don't I? Do I want to use it just for diseases? Do I want to use it for everything else? There are personal decisions that will have to be made. And then in our roles as citizens, as lawyers, doctors, Indian chiefs, legislators, TV hosts, we'll have to decide what do we want our society to do? What do we want our overall framework for laws to be? I don't think we need to make those decisions today, but we need to make them in the next 10 or 20 years. We need to make them sooner than we expect. And my hope for this book is it will provide some background and education to help people both at the individual level and the collective level 
make better decisions. Professor Quigley, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much well, for doing the Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.